We'll take your Bibles out and turn to the Gospel of John. John chapter 12. We'll be considering verses 20 through 26 this morning in a sermon I've entitled, Cultivating a Heart for the Harvest. Cultivating a Heart for the Harvest. I do not believe there's any such thing as accidental coincidences. I believe fully in divine providences. And because that's true, and because I interpret what enters my life and what happens in life as under the providential sovereign care and purposes of God, those things that enter my life and enter the life of our church, I see them as God designs or God winks or God providences. Uh, Several months ago, as I was thinking about our church calendar, looking at the first of the year and all that we have coming up in this calendar year, one of the things that caught my attention was our global impact celebration that begins this coming Saturday, our missions conference that we've been doing every year now for nine years. And as I looked at that, I thought, you know, I need to come up with some kind of theme or some kind of focus for this missions conference. So last year, in March of last year, when we had our 2022 theme, it was very easy to come up with a theme for that year because it just so happened in the providence of God that the Sunday of our missions conference happened to be where we landed in the verse-by-verse study through John on John 3.16. Anybody know that verse? It's a great missions verse. And so that was our theme for 2022 for our missions conference. And so as I'm thinking about 2023, back at the beginning of this year, I said, you know what? Let me look at my preaching schedule. The schedule I put together in November of 2021 Let's see where we happen to be landing the Sunday before our missions conference. And we're landing right here, John 12, 20 through 26. And as I read our focal passage for this morning, the theme just hit me like a ton of bricks, a heart for the harvest. And that's what our theme is for our missions conference next year. And so you will see, hopefully, as we go into this passage just how that kind of theme kind of emerged from this passage I'm going to be preaching this morning. As we go into this section, these few verses, let me give you the setup, the context of what's happening here in the flow of the narrative in the Gospel of John, particularly here in chapter 12. We are at the very beginning of what's known as Holy Week. Holy Week. This is the the last week of Jesus's public ministry and life. We saw last Sunday the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, often called Palm Sunday. And we saw how John recorded, and John alone records this, that those who were there as worshipers, as pilgrims in Jerusalem, were waving palm branches, a symbol of nationalistic pride, an emblem of their their hopes as a nation, the nation of Israel. And they were proclaiming, Hosanna, which is save us to the son of David, even the king of Israel. And so as he enters this uh, triumphal entry, what I noted last week was that this is a significant departure from Jesus's normal method of operations. Normally, Jesus is deflecting attention. Normally, Jesus is not drawing attention to himself. Hey, look at me. When he performs a miracle, when he heals somebody, he'll say, hey, don't tell anybody what happened to you. Don't tell anybody who did it. Whenever there's a particular controversy with the jealous Jews, he avoids that controversy and that conflict very often. But here we come to Palm Sunday, as we saw last week, and Jesus is inviting the attention, 
rather than deflecting the attention. And I believe what he's doing is he's goading the religious leaders into laying out and to accomplishing their murderous intentions of him. And he wants it to happen during Passover. What was Passover? Passover is one of the three pilgrimage festivals of the Jewish people. There would be upwards of a million pilgrims who would burst the streets of Jerusalem during this week, and they were coming to sacrifice lambs, to remember that there was blood that covered the doorpost of the Hebrew people in Egypt. And as God passed over through the angel of death, those homes, every home that was covered in the blood of the lamb was avoiding the wrath of God. And now here comes Jesus, the true Passover lamb, during Passover week, who will shed his blood to give his life as a ransom for those who will not experience the wrath of God. Isn't that beautiful? So there are over 100,000 lambs being sacrificed during Passover, but every single one of those lambs are simply a metaphor, a picture of what Jesus would accomplish on that first good Friday. So this is the context of what we're going to read now that Jesus says in verses 20 through 26. This is the word of God. Listen to it. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, Hellenists in in the language of the Bible, Hellenists. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The great Presbyterian preacher, James Montgomery Boyce, when uh, preaching on this passage and also in his commentary, he talked about in his commentary particularly how he has had the great privilege of preaching from behind many pulpits in all of his travels. And he says, you know, in those pulpits, particularly the ornate pulpits of the middle 20th century, what the congregation sees from the front is often much different than what the preacher sees from the back. The front is very beautiful. Again, it's ornate, and it's very lovely to look at. But he says when you're a preacher and you look at the back of these big pulpits, there are buttons to press. There are wires that you can trip on. Some pulpits have fans to blow up at the perspiring preacher. And he says one particular pulpit he preached in, it had a light that came on when he only had two minutes left in his sermon. (laughs) But he comments on one particular pulpit that he actually preached from multiple times and how he loved what was on that pulpit that the congregation never got to see. He says this, quote, there is one pulpit that I always remember favorably. It is the pulpit of the little chapel on the campus of the Stony Brook School located in Stony Brook, Long Island. I suppose that there are times when the backside of the pulpit is filled with hymn books and glasses of water too. There may even be buttons, but I have never noticed any of those things because of something else. That something else is a quotation from the Bible which faces the preacher 
as he stands to address his congregation. It is a short quotation, but an arresting one. It simply says, Sir, we would see Jesus. And following Dr. Boyce's comment, I put a sign right here from the ESV translation. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Would you say that's true of you? And I hope you, if you've been here for any length of time, you can say whether we're preaching from prophecy, from history, from poetry, the Old Testament or the New Testament, we want to lift up Jesus. That's why we're here. And so, from what we see in this initial reading of the passage of Jesus, I hope you see, as these Greeks came to Philip and then to Andrew, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I hope you can see the heart for the harvest starting to emerge. There are principles of the harvest. There are principles of sowing and reaping, principles of world missions all woven through this text. Again, this is the Feast of Passover. A million pilgrims would have come to Jerusalem, most of them Jews, but some of them Gentiles. Greeks would travel to this party, to this festival. Some of them are what is known as God-fearers. They're not uh, converted to Judaism yet, but they recognize the honor of God, of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Other Gentiles who would travel to Jerusalem are what are known as proselytes. These have converted to Judaism. These have gone through the rites of conversion to become full-fledged Jewish people. However, even though they have converted to Judaism, there are still some limitations because of their ancestry. There is the court of the Jews, which only the Jewish men could enter. And then there's the court of the Gentiles or the court of the women. And so there is some speculation about why these Greeks who had come to Philip and then to Andrew were asking them to see Jesus. Well, it may be because Jesus was in the court of the Jews and they weren't allowed to go in there. As we read between the lines here of John's account, it seems that those uh, Gentiles who have come, they want an audience with Jesus. They want to hear Jesus. They want to know Jesus. Now, I've told you before that our chapter and verse divisions in our Bibles, they are not a part of the original autographs of the Bible. They were added some 1,500 years after the Bible was completed. And so last week, we ended at verse 19, because that's where the paragraph ends and the kind of flow of thought. And today, we've started at verse 20. But there is a connection between verse 19 that we studied last week and verse 20 where we started today. I want you to see it. Look at verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. This is at the end of the triumphal entry. Look, the world has gone after him. And then a great literary moment in John's inspired writing, he says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. You see that? The Pharisees said, and it's something of a prophetic word. They don't even know they're prophetically saying it. The world has gone after Jesus. And John says, guess what? There were some Greeks at the festival. Isn't this beautiful? That even as we read in Isaiah 42 at the beginning of the service, that the Jews were called to be a light to the nations. They weren't to be a cul-de-sac of the truth of God. They were to be a thoroughfare of the truth of God. But they had become so inward focused and so isolated and so, so us for and no more, they were unconcerned about the salvation of the nations. 
And John says there were some Greeks who had come up to worship. They went to Jerusalem to worship God as well. And this has significant world missions implications for us as Christians in 2023. So that's how the section begins. This is the setup that the Pharisees say the world has gone after him. And then uh, John says the Greeks were there too. But there are three things in particular I want you to see from this passage that inform us about how we cultivate a heart for the harvest. Here's the first thing. Number one, I want us to consider that there was a request for the person of Jesus. Again, verse 21, so these, these Greeks, came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Why did they come to Philip? Why didn't they come to one of the other disciples? Well, there's some speculation here again. One, Philip is a Greek name, and so perhaps there was some affinity between these Greeks and Philip because they recognized he had a Greek name. Also, John gives us a clue and says he was from Bethsaida in Galilee. That was a region in Galilee that was heavily populated by Greeks, and so maybe these Greeks are from the same place, from Bethsaida of Galilee, and they've heard uh, that there is one of Jesus's inner 12 who is from their same neck of the woods. And so then Philip goes and he gets Andrew. Something I've pointed out as we've studied through John's gospel, we keep seeing Andrew bringing people to Jesus. Have you noticed that? Andrew's always bringing people to the Lord. The first person he brought to the Lord was Simon Peter, his own brother. He said, Simon, I think I found him. I think I've discovered the Messiah. You have got to come meet this guy. You fast forward to chapter 6, and it is Andrew in chapter 6 of John's gospel that finds the little boy with five loaves and two fish. And what does he do with the little boy? He brings him to Jesus. And now here we are in chapter 12, and what do we find Andrew doing? He's bringing people to Jesus. And even as we think about missions and our engagement in missions, this could be as simple as what your missions engagement is, bringing people to Jesus. Hey, I know a guy. His name's Jesus. I'd like you to meet him. That's missions, and that's exactly what Andrew is doing. We could be an Andrew to somebody else. And so there is this request from these Greeks, these people from far away who have come into the capital of Israel, and they want to see Jesus. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. There's a second thing I'd point out. Number two, a remark on the purpose of Jesus. The Lord gives a remark on his purpose in coming. He says in verse 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. If you think about it, that's kind of a curious way to respond to the Greeks' request to have an audience with the Lord. Jesus, there are some Greeks who have come and they want to talk to you. What does Jesus say? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now again, if you've been with us for this study, that word hour may pop out at you because we've seen multiple times throughout John's gospel that word appear. But the way it's appeared in the previous places is something like this. Jesus would say, my hour has not yet come. My hour is not yet here. The hour has not yet come. Uh, Several places we see that. In John chapter 2, whenever there's the wedding 
In Cana, they run out of wine. Mary comes to her son Jesus, said, Jesus, we've run out of wine. And what does Jesus say? Look at John 2, verse 4. Woman, that's a kind word. It's not a derogatory word. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. In John chapter 4, when Jesus is speaking with a Samaritan woman at the well, and he's talking about worship, she actually brings the subject of worship up. Notice what Jesus says to her in verse 21 of chapter 4, the same address. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In John chapter 7, Jesus is teaching in the temple complex, and there it's the feast of tabernacles. And in that teaching, Jesus exposes the extra-biblical rituals that the religious leaders are heaping upon the people. He exposes them for what they are. And so obviously the religious leaders are kind of upset. They want to take him out. And so look what verse 30 of chapter 7 says. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. And then in the very next chapter, Jesus' opponents are asking, what is your proof for your authority? How can you prove that you have the right to say what you've been saying this whole time? And Jesus says, I'll give you two witnesses. Witness number one, my works that I've been performing. Nobody can deny those. Witness number two, my Father who is in heaven, witnesses of me. And what do they say? Well, look at, they want to get rid of him again. And verse 20 says, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Over and over and over again, the Gospel of John keeps saying, his hour has not yet come. His hour has not yet come. My hour is not yet here. And here in chapter 12, right here, Jesus says, my hour has come. What is that? What is the hour? What is the point? Up until here for three years, his hour's not here. His hour's not here. Finally, to these Greeks, he says, my hour has come. What is the hour? Friends, it is the hour of the cross. It is the hour of the crucifixion. We know this because the very next section we'll study, Lord willing, uh, in two weeks, this next Sunday is our missions conference. I won't be preaching, but the Sunday after that, we'll pick up right after this. And we see this, the heading, it may be in your Bible, you can see of the next section in verse 27. In my Bible, it says, the Son of Man must be lifted up. That's lifted up upon a cross. Jesus is telling them plainly, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die on a cross. Here in verse 23, my hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What is that? Look at verse 27. Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. What is the hour? It's the hour of the cross. And amazingly, Jesus says it is this hour of his death, this hour of the cross, when there will be glory. Have you ever thought of that before? The cross is glorious? For nobody then thought a cross was glorious Do you think an electric chair is glorious? Do you think a lethal injection is glorious? Jesus says the cross is glorious. Come back in two weeks and we'll find out why the cross is glorious. But the hour Jesus was speaking of was most definitely the hour of his death. 
This is the very purpose for why Jesus came. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I've come to this hour. And that leads to the third thing I want us to consider this morning from the passage. Number three, notice a response of paradoxes from Jesus. After establishing the purpose for which he came, the purpose of the cross, Jesus then begins to present three, what I'm calling, paradoxes. Because many of us have grown up in church, and we've heard these statements from Jesus many times, they have likely lost the shock value that the first hearers on this day, these Greeks, would have received from these statements. When he said these things, they would have thought, Rabbi, what are you talking about? This doesn't make sense. These things don't align together. And that's really what a paradox is. I have Webster's definition of a paradox. Look at it. A paradox is a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense and yet is perhaps true. I'll tell you, with these three paradoxes, they aren't perhaps true. They are true. They are seemingly contradictory. They don't compute in our normal way of thinking, but Jesus said them, and so therefore they are abundantly true. They are real. And these paradoxes are not only about Jesus, about him and his work and what he will accomplish, but friend, they are also for every follower of Jesus. If you're here this morning and you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a disciple of the Lord, then these statements are for you as well. What are they? Well, there's three of them I want you to see. The first paradox he gives is this, you die to bear fruit. In order to bear fruit, Lookout Valley Baptist Church, you must die. That's hard. That's a contradictory statement to our minds. Jesus begins this first paradox with truly, truly. In the King James Version, verily, verily. We don't say verily in our day. The Greek there is amen, amen. This is true. You can take it to the bank. What does he say? Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You die in order to bear fruit. This analogy obviously would have been very familiar in that day, a largely agrarian society. And I know we've got several gardeners in our church. My daughter, Ashley, is a gardener. And so as a gardener, she goes and she buys seed, right? And then she takes those seed and she plants them in little cups in her kitchen. And she waits for those seeds to germinate and sprout up. And then she takes those plants and transplants them outside into her garden spot. Anybody done that before? Yeah, this is gardening. You understand the concept that Jesus is talking about here. If, if there's a, a grain farmer, he doesn't take the kernel of corn, and set it up on the family mantle. Everyone, look at the corn. This is our livelihood. Let's admire the corn. Uh, Mama, would you go get a glass enclosure that we can protect this kernel of corn? That's not what you do with a seed. That's not what you do with grain. You take it, and you bury it in the dirt. And that husk, that shell, cracks open, 
It dies. Why? Because it is in its death that the power and the productivity and the germination of that seed is released. Only in death is the power of reaching the nations released. If Christ would not have died, we would all be lost in our sins. No hope. And if we do not die to our own agendas, if we do not die to our own preferences, likes, I really wish the temperature was about two degrees warmer this morning in the sanctuary. That really bugged me. That's baloney when it comes to the Grand Commission. Do you believe that? Our minute details mean nothing when it comes to the Great Commission of the Gospel. Die to those preferences. Die to those wants. Die to those things you think are so important. Unless you die, you will not bear fruit. This is Jesus. And this is exactly what he's been talking about from the beginning. And Jesus provides for us an example to follow. He's not going to ask you to go somewhere he's not going. He's going to be buried in the ground dead. There was a book published over 100 years ago by Charles Sheldon. Many of you probably have it on your shelf. It's called In His Steps. It was a novel. I've got a picture of that book. And in that novel, the question was asked, what would Jesus do? Do y'all remember that? Show that for me, Trev. Back in the mid-90s, as a youth pastor, every youth group kid had one of those bracelets. Anybody have one of those bracelets? It's okay. You're among friends. You can be honest. Yes. What would Jesus do? And it asked the question. And so you would think, okay, somebody's trying to cut me off on the interstate. What would Jesus do? Right? And so it was kind of this mindset that as you go about your daily life, you just think about and you process, you look at that bracelet, okay, this situation, what would Jesus do right here? But that's really not what the phrase in his steps refers to. So Sheldon got this phrase in his steps that was the title of his book from the Bible. From Peter's epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, notice what Peter says. He says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. What are the steps? Suffering. What are the steps? Death. Living the Christian life, yes, is about doing the golden rule, doing unto the others as you would have them do unto you. But if you leave Lookout Valley Baptist Church and you only think being a Christian is about just being nice to other people, being kind, then you've profoundly missed the point. The Christian life is about trusting in the fact that Christ suffered and died as a criminal for you to take the punishment for your death and that we are called to follow in his steps. He's given us an example we are called to die to ourselves. Paul said something similar in Colossians chapter 3. He says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Unless you die, Jesus says, you will not bear fruit. And this mindset is fundamental if we're going to be a church on mission. That's the first paradox. The second paradox he gives us is this one. Number two, you hate your life 
to keep it. You hate your life to keep it. Look at verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life will keep it, in this world, will keep it for eternal life. What is Jesus talking about here? Hating your life? Let me tell you what he's not talking about. He's not talking about this self-loathing mindset that some people have. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I think I'll go eat worms, right? That's not what Jesus is talking about, just this self-loathing, I hate my life, right? What, where this really hits home is when someone begins to say, you know, I don't know if anyone would care if I ended my life. One of the great sadnesses and tragedies of our most advanced, prosperous, and wealthy society is the sharp rise of suicide. But if you think about it, suicide is profoundly a looking only at yourself, only concerned with yourself. It's this self-focus. People who are focused on others, people who are concerned with the needs of others, they don't commit suicide. <laughs> So this is not what Jesus is saying, this kind of self-loathing. When Jesus says to hate your life, I mean, obviously, your life is your greatest blessing. It's the greatest gift. But what Jesus is doing here, he's using this word hate to arrest our attention, to grab us, unless you hate your life. And here's what he means, simply this. If there is anything in your life your job, your family, your children, your house, your retirement account, if there is anything that impedes, blocks your unhindered pursuit of Christ, kill it. Hate it. Again, this is harsh language from Jesus. He said something similar in Luke chapter 14. He uses this word hate Again, look at Luke 14, 26. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, that's what he says here, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross, instrument of execution, and come after me cannot be my disciple. What is he, what is he saying? There must be a complete death to all the attachments of life, a dying to all these pursuits. Now, I've known some teenagers who want to take this verse from Luke 14 and apply it as their life verse. Whoever does not hate his mother and father, oh, I got that one covered. I hate mom and dad. Man, I hate them, right? That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's trying to grab our attention. Unless you have such a dependence upon Jesus that everything else in your life is so far behind, it looks like hate. You can't be my disciple. Again, he says in Colossians 3.3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. These things that have great worth to us, our children, our spouses, our brothers, our sisters, our parents, and even our own life, when we see the surpassing value and worth and greatness of Jesus, 
they pale in comparison. It's having a contempt, a contempt for this fading life in contemplation of the life to come. Let me tell you a great title for a book that is the direct opposite of what Jesus is saying here. Your best life now. That's the exact opposite of what Christ is calling us to. Paradox number one, you die in order to bear fruit. Paradox number two, you hate your life to keep it. Paradox number three, you serve to be honored. You serve to be honored by God. Notice what Jesus is saying. He's just piling it on us this morning, isn't he? He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So there's a flow of logic that Jesus is creating here in verse 26. I'm going to lay it out like kind of a flow chart, okay? Box number one. No, go back. Go back. We're not there yet. Here we go. Here's the flow chart. It's mental. It's not going to be on the screen. The mental flow chart. Box number one. If you serve me, you're going to follow me. Number two. If you follow me, you'll be wherever I am. Box number three. If you are where I am by following me because you're serving me, here's the consequence. The Father will honor you. You follow the logic? If you say you serve me, you're going to follow me. If you follow me, wherever I go, that's where you're going to go. And if you go where I'm going to go, the Father will honor you. Now, we can hear that and we can say, yeah, that's me. Jesus, wherever you're going, I'm going with you. I'm signed up for it. Me and you, we're bosom buddies, just like this. I'm right by your side, Jesus. I want you to think about the context of when Jesus says this. My hour has come. If you're going to serve me, you've got to follow me. And by following me, what he says is, that means wherever I am, you're going to be standing right beside me. When he's betrayed over to the religious leaders, you're going to stand with Jesus then as he's being interrogated by the power brokers of the religion? As they turn him over to Pontius Pilate, the governor over Judea, and he's going to condemn him to death, but before death, a scourging, a beating. You willing to stand beside Jesus then? As he's turned over to the torturers and they bind him with leather strips to a post and they beat him within an inch of his life. 39 lashes from the cat of nine tails. You going to stand beside Jesus then? As he carries his own cross up to Golgotha and he's impaled on the wood with spikes of iron and bows his head and dies. You going to stand beside Jesus then? He says, anyone who's going to serve me, you got to follow me. And if you're saying you're a follower of me, wherever I go, you're going to be right there with me. And if you're right there with me, serving me, the Father will honor you. In that day, servants were the bottom rung of the societal ladder. They didn't get much honor. They didn't get much respect. 
But Jesus says, you become a servant to me. Hate your own life. Die to yourself. Follow me. The Father's going to honor you. It's amazing this week as I was thinking and praying about specific application of this passage to us as a church. Specifically, this week as we are embarking on our missions conference. I want us to take these things to heart. What does it mean to have a heart for the harvest? How do we cultivate a heart for the harvest? So on Tuesday at my weekly meeting with several brothers who we talked through the sermon text, I'm going to be preaching this coming Sunday. It was actually Pastor Wade that brought up this concept of a ladder or rungs on a ladder. And so I went with that. I, I created a staircase, but I want you to consider this is some response, I believe, this week that we would have if we would answer the Lord's call of how to be used by him, how to cultivate a heart for the harvest. So if you haven't been taking notes, take out the, the outline, and I want you to at least jot these down on the back side of that sheet, that insert in your bulletin. There's seven steps on this ladder. It looks like this. And I want us to think through, what could it mean this week that if you die to yourself, you bear much fruit? The first step, bottom rung of the ladder, is just simply attend the conference. Just come. That's a pretty low investment, right? <laughs> pretty low investment. That means coming here when we have things to do. Um, we have particular meeting times. Pull out the bullet, another insert that looks like this, and it has our schedule for next week, our missions conference. Look at it and come. That's, that's it. Attend the conference. Here's step two. Engage with partners. So we've got multiple missionaries and global partners who serve around the world and also serve here in our Ch Chattanooga area. We have multiple opportunities for you to personally, face-to-face, -face, engage with these world partners. Um, so, for instance, on Sunday morning in our small group hour, we will have world partners in all of our adult and youth small groups and children's small groups, right? We'll have world partners here that you can come and talk to and listen to and hear their story. Our Sunday evening small groups, the one that meets in my home, we will have world partners that we'll be engaging with. On Tuesday morning, we have our senior adult luncheon. All of our world partners will be at the senior adult luncheon. If you get an AARP mail out, you are eligible to come to the senior adult luncheon on Tuesday, okay? So come at 1030. I just crossed that threshold, by the way. So come at 1030 on Tuesday for our senior adult luncheon, and you can engage with our partners. Tuesday evening is our missions fair. I call it a Baptist cocktail party. Without the cocktails, obviously. So we'll have snacks and finger foods, drinks, non-alcoholic, and you can come, and we're going to mingle for an hour and a half, go to the different tables that the missionaries have set up, and engage with the partners. That's step two. Low impact. Step three. Pray for missions. Hopefully, you have had a more intentional prayer over the last 20 days of our 40-day fast. If not, we can ramp it up some. 
praying for missions, praying for missionaries. That sounds good to us. Yes, we should pray for our missionaries. But friends, this is foundational to God's global work. This is fundamental. This is indispensable, indispensable, excuse me, from local work and global work. So to that end, we have a fantastic opportunity for you. And that is we're going to have on Saturday, our very own Kimberly Creaseman will be leading us in a prayer walk training. This is so low impact, very easy. This is a family-friendly event. Bring your children. We're going to learn together with activities. How do you walk and pray? Doesn't sound very complicated, does it? But they spent seven years, 17 years, excuse me, the Creesmans in Southeast Asia in places like China and Singapore doing cross-cultural ministry. It is essential. Prayer is essential to do ministry across the world and to do missions across the road. It's essential. So this pre-conference event is on Saturday. Here's what I want you to do. On this sheet that looks like this, very easy. There is a QR code. If you've never used a QR code, it's very easy. Take the camera of your smartphone, point it at that QR code, and a web address will come up. You just simply touch it. Wow, amazing technology. Then you fill out the registration. If that's too technologically advanced for you, guess what? We have a paper clipboard on the front pew. You'd simply come down, write your name, how many people are coming with you. We're going to cater lunch, so we need to know if you're coming. Please sign up for our prayer training. That's step three, pray for missions. Here's the fourth step, pledge to the FCO. That stands for Faith Commitment Offering. That's the next step. Pledge to the FCO, the Faith Commitment Offering. If you're on our regular mailing list, you will receive a letter from me where it has outlined for you a budget for our missions giving over the next 12 months. This is just what it says, a faith commitment offering. We have commitments to missions partners around the world that we fund, that we underwrite. They're there because we send them money to be there, and it's all a faith pledge. We are trusting that God will use us to send money to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We fund missions locally. We have money partnerships with Choices Pregnancy Center, with Tennessee Baptist Children's Home, with Jacoba Care here across the mountain in, in St. Elmo, um, with Good News Club, where we and uh, Child Evangelism Fellowship, right here at Lookout Valley Elementary School. We fund a Good News Club here in our local 37419 zip code. Okay? So this is local missions, this is global missions. So what the faith commitment offering is, is it's a pledge that you talk with your family and you pray and you say, how much am I willing to give to missions over the next 12 months? So this will be the ninth year that we've had this faith commitment offering here at Lookout Valley Baptist Church. In those nine years, listen, we have quadrupled the amount of money we send to the mission field. Quadrupled. <laughs> that's amazing. And that's because of people getting a hold of the vision trusting God to supply the needs for their family personally and saying for the next 12 months, we're going to give this amount of money to God's global mission work through the life of our church. Here's the next one. And these next three are all really kind of the same idea, but just different areas of focus. Number five, go. Local engagement. Become regularly engaged in the local missions life 
through our church or even not through our church. Get involved locally with God's activity of mission. What does that look like? We've got volunteers from our church that go every Friday to Hakobacare in St. Elmo. That is the third largest distribution of food to indigent needs in Hamilton County. So we've got volunteers who go there. They give food to people who are in need. They always share the gospel with them. If you'd like to work in Hakobacare, that's a great opportunity. We have volunteers in our church who counsel people at Choices Pregnancy Center. We have volunteers in our church who serve every week at the Good News Club at Lookout Valley Elementary with some 50 or 60 children every week. God bless them. Every Thursday, they're sharing the gospel with children. We have volunteers in our church who work with the Tennessee Baptist Children's Home. We have volunteers in our church who work in the Salvation Army every single week caring for the homeless. This is local engagement. So God would call us to do that, right? Here's a second. Go, go on a short-term trip. Go on a short-term trip. We're in the process of planning several short-term trips for the next year. One will be to Guatemala, likely during fall break in October of this next year. Another trip to Zimbabwe to work with Sarah and Casper in Zimbabwe. We've taken trips to Providence, Rhode Island. We have other short-term trips, both nationally and internationally, we desire to take, but it takes people to go on them. Go on a short-term trip. And finally, here's the final one, go as a career missionary. One of my personal passions throughout my 30 years of Christian vocational ministry has been to see vocational missionaries raised up and sent from where I've been serving. By God's grace, when I was in student ministry, I have many uh, former students who are now vocational missionaries around the world. Um, two of those students are going to be with us next week, Stephen and Megan Jones. They met in my youth group. They went to college together. They got married, and they went on the mission field to South Asia with the International Mission Board together. They're going to be with us next week. From our own church, little old Lookout Valley Baptist Church, what good can come from Nazareth? What good can come from Lookout Valley? I'll tell you what good. Raising up Sarah Smith to go to Zimbabwe. Raising up the Cope family to sell their business and move to the poorest of the poor in the mountains of Chikimula, Guatemala. That's what good can come out of Lookout Valley. And I don't believe God's done raising up career missionaries from this church family where God takes ordinary, everyday, run-of-the-mill people and he says, you're going to be some of my choice servants across the world. I'm praying God does that. And he keeps doing that. Go. And these things, these steps, are the natural consequences of answering the discipleship call Jesus lays out here in this passage. Paradox number one, you die in order to bear fruit. Paradox number two, you hate your life in order to keep it. Paradox number three, you serve, you follow Jesus wherever he goes in order to be honored by God. And friends, I believe when you grasp these discipleship principles, taking these steps of obedience and missions engagement is not hard at all. My life is already the Lord's. What, what is it? It's just simply living out the mission that God's called us to. 
And here's the deal. There are great benefits to answering this call. There are tremendous benefits to responding to these paradoxes that Jesus laid out. In fact, they're my last thought. Jesus is the only path. Following Jesus is the only path. Answering Jesus' call is the only path to true joy, true life, and true honor. Won't you join him there?